just a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, and we will uh, look at verse 38, and then we will skip to chapter 10, and we'll read verses 28 through 39 there in Nehemiah. I'm sure we've all heard the saying, talk is cheap. And when we say that, uh, we are saying that it is certainly easy to say words, even words of commitment, but it's something entirely different to live those words out. It is kind of like the difference between just saying you love someone and showing someone that you love them. I know of no wife that would be happy if her husband only ever said he loved her and never showed her that he loved her. Many people can talk a big talk, but they fail to have the resolve to live that talk out. The people of Nehemiah's day were not just talking the talk, but they were going to walk the walk. Adoniah Judson sweated out Burma's heat for 18 years without a furlough, six years without a convert, and during the torture and imprisonment, he admitted that he never saw a ship sail without wanting to jump on board and go home. When his wife's health broke and he put her on a homebound vessel in the knowledge that he would not see her for two full years, he confided to his diary, If we could find some quiet resting place on earth where we could spend the rest of our days in peace, But he steadied himself with his remarkable postscript. Life is short. Millions of Burmese are perishing. I am almost the only person on earth who has attained their language to communicate salvation. You see, Judson did not just talk the talk, but he walked the walk. Charles Spurgeon said, You never hear Jesus say in Pilate's judgment hall one word that would let you imagine that he was sorry that he had undertaken so costly a sacrifice for us. When his hands are pierced, when when he is parched with fever, his tongue dried up like a shard of pottery. When his whole body is dissolved into the dust of death, you never hear a groan or a shriek that looks like Jesus is going back on his commitment. We live in a world today that seems to lack commitment. And when it comes to actually making a covenant, well, for some that just seems strange. The people of Nehemiah's day had to come to the realization that they needed a personal relationship with God. This is why at the end of chapter 9, they sign and seal a covenant. They are showing their commitment to their relationship with Jesus Christ. They knew the Lord did not bless disobedience. I would ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word as I read from Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and then chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. Be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Skipping to chapter 10, verse 28 through 39. 
The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the, uh, of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exactation of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our, of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions to the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to, bring no, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. Let us pray. Father, speak to us today through your word. Speak to us about what a covenant commitment looks like. What it looks like in the lives of your people. Oh Lord, may we not neglect the house of our God. Speak for your servants here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. At the conclusion of their prayer, in chapter 9, the people make a renewed surrender to the God of the covenant. Those who belong to God must behave as God demands. The time has now come for them to affirm their loyalty in the presence of their families, of their friends, and of their neighbors. Their commitment to God takes on the form of a series of written promises. And that's essentially the point of verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What I want us to see this morning are five aspects of making this covenant commitment. 
And then next week, we will look a little deeper into some of the specifics of the covenant. But today, five aspects of the covenant. And my prayer is that as we look at this, we can use this as a reflection on our own lives this morning. So first, let's notice the cosigners of the covenant. Though we did not read uh, the first section of chapter 10, we are introduced in that first section to the cosigners. We have 84 specific men recorded that are the cosigners of the covenant. They sealed their names to it. The signing of the covenant ratified it and made it legally binding. So it's easy to see that these men were serious about what they were doing. These men uh, were divided up into two primary groups. The first group being the Levites and the priests. This group is in verses 1 through 13. We have the Levites and the priests. Notice the very first name, if we were to read that, is the name Nehemiah. His name is prominently place right at the beginning. So the order, if we were to be reading this, it would be Nehemiah and then the priests and Levites and the brothers. Nehemiah is an example for the people. In other words, Nehemiah is not asking the people to do something that he's not willing to do. Nehemiah wanted to be clear where he stood. And he unashamedly stood for what he believed in. Let's be very clear. No great victories will ever be won unless people are willing to take a stand for what is right. It's just not going to happen. As Christians, we must seek to preach and the gospel and to reach people with the gospel. And if we're willing to pay the price, it can be a reality that we actually reach people with the gospel. However, to do that, we must stop complaining about how things are or how we want them to be and get busy for the Lord. As we read through this list of names, we don't really know any of these people. It's not like we're reading, if we read this list of names, it's not like we're like, oh, 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 uh, Hattush, oh boy, I really know him. He's all through the scripture. We don't know him. They're, they're, they're unknown people. Guess what? Most people don't know you either. Most people don't know me either. If you go into Washington, Illinois, the average person's not going to know who Josh Monda is. Oh, yeah, oh, Josh Monda. He sure is a famous fella. There's, There's nothing famous about me. But by the grace of God, we can have an influence for the Lord in their life. Too often, people think that God can't use them because they're a nobody. Well, I'm just a nobody, and I I get that. I really do. I mean, I could sit around and think, God, I'm a a nobody. I pastor this little itty-bitty church in Washington, Illinois. Big whoop-dee-doo. But listen, our usefulness has nothing to do with our status. Nothing to do with our status with man it has everything to do with your relationship with the Lord and so I just say to you get busy don't sit around thinking I'm a nobody God can't use me I'm, I'm just this or that just get busy you see because that's just a reflection of your relationship with the Lord I can't sit around my, 
my house or sit around in my office here and say, well, I'm just a nobody. I just got, got this little itty bitty church and we're never going to be a big church and yada, 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 yada. And oh, poor me and have a little pity party about how, how poor I am. Because that would speak to my relationship with the Lord. My usefulness has nothing to do with my status in the eyes of other people, but it has everything to do with my relationship with the Lord. Let's get busy doing the Lord's business. Next, we have the leaders of the people. The leaders of the people. So we have the the Levites and the priests in the first group, and then in the second group, it's the leaders of the people. The second group consists of the chiefs of the people. They were the heads of the families. They were considered leaders among the people during their time. These, These would have been people that stood with Nehemiah to help him get things done and to keep things moving in the right direction. Leaders are typically great visionaries, but they need others to help them make their dreams become a practical reality. I know that as a pastor. Uh, there, there, are, there are times, especially when I was in student ministry, I'd have these great visions, but I'd have no idea how to accomplish it. I had to have people come alongside me and help me to accomplish that vision. And uh, as a pastor, I can have a vision of a direction of, our, of the way our church needs to go, and it's a comfort when I have faithful people who will come alongside and make that vision a reality. For example, we are in the midst of doing a pastor in church assessment. Some of y'all know that to find the next steps in church revitalization. I know for that to happen, it will take faithful people to carry out that vision. There are 44 men listed in this group of influential leaders who are respected by the people, it is vital. It is vital. And for any change to ever take place, leaders must have the respect of the people. So we've seen the co-signers of the covenant. And now for the rest of the time together, I want us to see basically the the practicality of a covenant. So first, let's see the cruciality of the covenant the cruciality of the covenant covenants are crucial they're essential from a biblical perspective but not just from a biblical perspective but from a historical and a contemporary perspective as well so first these these kinds of written agreements have prominence in biblical history god made covenants with noah and with abraham and later he initiated an agreement with his people through moses committing himself to them as their unique god in return they were asked to be obedient they demonstrated their response to him by the obedience to his law we have the ten commandments um, to display that for us we have already seen throughout the book of nehemiah that even though the lord was utterly faithful to the people they were not faithful in return they very frequently did not hold up to their end of the agreement during specific times of their history they came to the realization of just how serious their disloyalty to god was and the leaders such as joshua and and um, the people like him like hezekiah and josiah framed their people's renewed commitments in written covenants 
The narratives giving description, these are narratives given description to these covenants, renewal ceremonies in Judah are recorded for us in the books of Chronicles, probably during the exile and soon after. And such stories certainly would have been well known by the believers like Nehemiah who treasured the history of the people. When they added their names to this covenant, they were doing something that was in line with the traditions of their forefathers. They, they understood what it meant to sign a covenant, to say, hey, I'm putting my name on this covenant for the Lord. Not only are covenants important in biblical history, but they have been important in Christian history as well. Several 16th century congregations followed the precedent of biblical covenants as they prepared written accounts of their corporate commitment to the Lord and to one another. Some of the Puritans recorded personal promises of love and loyalty to the Lord. Joseph Alleyne's covenant was publicized by his brother Richard Alleyne and became a model for other Christian groups to copy. Later, men like Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, and John Wesley put together their personal commitments to the Lord in the form of written promises as they surrendered their lives wholly to God. In the 17th century, there were some nonconformist commitments that took the form of a corporate covenant as local church members would pledge themselves to honor God in specific ways and would sign their names to these promises. Wesley compiled a New Year's Covenant service for the Methodist people, which to this day is an important part of spiritual life of the Wesleyan Methodist churches. Thirdly, many of our contemporaries have also found it helpful to draw up covenants to give expression to their commitment to Christ concerning precise issues. We have what's called the Lucene Covenant. It's a recent example of this. It's a corporate commitment to evangelism and social action on the part of evangelical leaders from all over the world. The value of such a covenant is that it saves our commendable desires from hovering in some sort of religious void. Instead, we make firm decisions in the presence of God to do his will over the contemporary issues of the day. Many present-day Christians have found it helpful to draw up a covenant with the Lord. They identify specific areas of their lives where it's helpful to make a definite commitment to Christ about matters like their daily communion with him and their witness and their church. Sometimes we hear a challenging sermon and we want to be better Christians, but we fail to actually respond to the word of God through the preacher. We, we may say, well, that sure was a nice sermon, Pastor. I really, I, I like that sermon. Or, boy, that sermon really got me to thinking. Or it sure hit me hard. Or that sure stepped on my toes. But here's the question, right? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? That's right. That's the question I always want to ask. If you come to me at the end of the service and you say, Pastor, boy, that one really hit me hard. That's the question I want to respond with. Well, what are you doing with it? How's it affecting your life? What are you going to change because of it? What are you going to do differently in your life? We should take time to channel our desires into practical decisions. Putting them in writing and acting on them. 
Many of you know that I took the time to rewrite our church covenant in the hopes that we would eventually adopt it as a standard to live by. What I'm saying to you is don't don't think, oh, covenant, that's just for old the old Bible times. That's not for me today. It is crucial for us today, and I would challenge you to write things down that you will live by. Not just like, oh, that was good. Oh, oh, that was great. No, here's a standard I'm going to live by. This is what I learned. This is what I'm going to change. This is how I'm going to live for the Lord in this area of my life. Next notice, the construction of the covenant. If we were to study ancient Near East covenants, we would find that these agreements followed a common literary structure. They had a history that predated Moses. Political covenants were often drawn up between stronger powers and weaker nations. They would begin by outlining the historical relationship between the two parties in agreement. Paying special attention to the generosity of the stronger stronger party, the more powerful nation. And then the covenant's basic stipulations would follow before a description of, of the specific and practical ways in which a more general commitment would be applied. It would then typically go on to require a copy of the written agreement to be deposited in the temple of the God and the terms of the covenant be declared publicly on different occasions. Those who signed the covenant went on to to agree to blessings and cursings which would follow the keeping or the breaking of the covenant. And then the covenant would conclude with a brief, uh, brief recapitulation of its terms. This is the same literary structure in Matthew or in Nehemiah 9 and 10. We have this extensive prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, which eloquently, eloquently describes the relationship between the Lord and his people. And there is an appropriate emphasis on the generosity of God to the people. The basic stipulation of this covenant is that God's people promise to obey God's word. And then in Nehemiah 10, 29, we read, Join with their brothers or nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servants of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. This general statement is then followed by a series of specific ways in which the commitments to God's law is to be applied in various aspects of their life. They have domestic areas dealing with mixed marriages, commercial areas dealing with the Sabbath and trading, agricultural areas in the seventh year laws, social areas that dealt with how debts are canceled, religious areas dealing with how God's house is to be supported, and economic areas dealing with regular contributions. The covenant concluded with an appropriate recapitulation. Look at the end of verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's the structure it followed. It followed a construction. So you want to construct a covenant? I would gladly say do it and follow the structure you find laid out here in Nehemiah. Next, notice this, the competence of the covenant. The competence of the covenant. So one could read the terms of this covenant and think, that's irrelevant to our world today. 
In fact, isn't that what we often do with Scripture, right? I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm talking about Scripture with someone and they just dismiss it as irrelevant to our culture today. That doesn't apply to us today. I mean, here we have a, a covenant about a small country in the Middle East under Persian domination. And it determines separation from religious ideas and practice, uh, practices of its neighbors. And concern, uh, it concerns the life of mainly rural communities in their farms and fields, their laws, the observance of holy days, financial support for their temple, the maintenance of the temple staff. I mean, how does that apply to us? Seems foreign. We're, we're in this increasingly mobile environment. We're highly technological. We're largely urban. How does that speak to us? But when we gaze carefully at the distinct features of this covenant, we begin to realize that its topics are not just distinctly 5th century B.C. Its themes are indeed prominent in our world today. They relate to contemporary issues like the authority of Scripture, our Christian witness in an increasing pluralistic society, the sanctity and stability of marriage, employment conditions, human and animal rights, conservations, even green issues and money management we find in this covenant teaching for us and our century just as much as their century. I'm not saying that we read this and we mechanically follow it. If we did that, then we'd have to arrange for public worship on Saturdays. And some of you probably wouldn't want to do that. And our farmers would have to uh, ensure that uh, their land was follow every seven years. To be plain, some of the things in this covenant can't really directly relate to us. There's no temple in Jerusalem that we're going to support. There's no longer a sacrificial system that we're going to adhere to. So how can these stipulations apply to modern day culture and our world? Surely there's something to be said to us. We know and appreciate um, so much from Nehemiah's character as we've looked at. We, we, we can examine his, his character and appreciate that. We see that he's a personal example of a godly man but how do we interpret this covenant and all the related passages i think that's a good question i'm glad you asked it christopher j h wright suggests to us that old testament ethical teachings of this kind provide for the christian reader a helpful paradigm a model or example for other cases where a basic principle remains unchanged though the details may differ if you've ever tried to study or have studied uh, or tried to learn another language, then you're familiar with paradigms, like verb patterns, which demonstrate how the endings or suffixes will appear uh, for similar words. Wright illustrates this use of a paradigm model by relating it to the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus Christ. So when we're called to be followers of Christ, that's not meant to be a literal interpretation. Otherwise, everyone would be a carpenter, and we would wear first century clothing, and we would enlist some help, and we would attend the synagogue worship, and we'd travel throughout Israel. The example of Jesus is important to us, but when he used the example of following, he wasn't indicating, oh, you follow me exactly as I'm doing in some sort of slavish repetition of his life. 
That would be absurd, even for the contemporaries of Jesus' day. Most of them wouldn't become homeless, itinerant preachers, but they would be his devoted followers. It it means that we move from what we know that Jesus did. We read the scripture. We see what Jesus did. We see how Jesus lived so that we might assume what he would do in our changed situation. The overall shape and character of his life, we look at the life of Christ in the scripture, and that becomes a pattern, our paradigm for our life, by which we test the Christ-likeness of our own life. So we see the life of Christ, and we say, okay, I want to live like I see him live. That's the pattern for my life. If you want to know if you're Christ-like, you ask this, am I doing what Christ would do in this situation? Very simply, am I doing what Christ would do in this situation? I mean, the, the craze several years ago when I, when early on when I was a youth pastor was everybody was running around with their WWJD bracelets, right? In fact, that was the password for our Wi-Fi here, right? W, what would Jesus do? That's what, that everybody was, that is the parent we should be asking ourselves. If we want to test our Christ-likeness, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus act? What would Jesus say in the situation that I am currently in? That's how you test Christ-likeness. So we use this as our model, as we read Nehemiah's covenant as well. And we realize it has important things to say to us as we look beneath Israel's legislation as to why these people were committed to act in these particular ways. The principle behind this teaching is vital for us today, as it was for them. How we apply the teaching will be different in our lives, that, that is, um, in the way that we live our lives, but our application will be just as meaningful, practical, and relevant as theirs intended to be. Furthermore, as an exercise in commitment, the covenant has so much to say about our contemporary, non-committed society today. Because we find commitment exceptionally difficult. Most people preferred not to be tied to firm allegiances. The main political parties of our day, they lament over the fact that people will agree with their policies but be reluctant to join them because they fear that belonging to them may mean that uh, they are expected to do something. They have to be prepared to give something. This is one reason why in our culture and society today, cohabitation has increased so greatly. Because couples are unwilling to commit to one another in a marriage relationship. So I say, let's just live together and experiment. And then if it doesn't go the way we want it to go, we can break it off. And then we're okay. Now here's what we must understand as a church. Churches are in the exact same boat. Christians are willing and pleased to come to worship 
sometimes even on a regular basis. But they're not willing to join the membership of a particular congregation because they would rather prefer to drift from one church to another as their mood takes them. So if they don't like something in this particular church that they're in, then they can just go try another church. We are so non-committed. We will come on Sunday as long as we're getting something out of it. But don't ask us to commit to entering into a deeper relationship with the church or the people by showing up to Sunday school. But, oh, no, that would be too much. That'd be, that'd be, you'd be a radical committed Christian at that point. And certainly, don't dare ask someone to show up on a Wednesday evening. Oh, you're super spiritual if you do that. Don't ask to pour into one another's lives. Can't have that. And then we sit and wonder what's wrong with the church today. We're not committed. Scripture clearly tells us that the church is to be a covenant community covenant community regardless of age regardless of race regardless of sex covenant community and yet we struggle being a community at all and I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone I'm just giving you the reality of the situation and the fact that we come up with all kinds of excuses to be non-committed Christians in fact if you if you are someone that does not come to Sunday school or Wednesday night, you probably just came up with all kinds of reasons when I was just speaking of why you don't come. Maybe you even squirmed in your pew just a little bit. And you're like, oh boy, Pastor Real just hit me hard. This whole idea of non-committed Christians is hurting the body of Christ. Because we don't commit to the church And we certainly don't commit to one another. And it's hurting mission work. Abroad, more and more missionaries are willing to go on a short-term little mission trip, but they're not willing to make a lifelong commitment which characterized the earlier generations. An unreserved commitment that is costly and sacrificial is decidedly unpopular today because nobody wants to do it. Just don't. That takes too much. Lastly, notice this. The characteristics of the covenant. The characteristics of the covenant. Covenant that is made by Nehemiah and the people open with a vow of total allegiance to what the Lord has said to them through Moses, the servant of God. The initial promise to obey God's word was of general and introductory nature. They promised to follow the law of God and obey carefully the commands and regulations and decrees of our Lord. I want to look in depth at three characteristics, like I said I was going to do last week, of this commitment. First, it's a personal commitment. 
It's a personal commitment. The names of Nehemiah and all these other leaders were affixed to a written document. Some of the names are patronymic and ancestral or family names rather than personal names. Still, they fix their seals in token of their promise to abide by the conditions of the covenant. And they sign not only on their, on, on, on their behalf, but as priests and Levites and leaders who were representative of all the people. This was not just some vague statement. That was formally assented to by a large nameless crowd, but one that was signed by responsible people who, before they added their names and personal seals, had ensured that those that they were representing shared in their determination to please God by honoring and obeying his word. Every individual Israelite was personally involved. Not just the signatories of the covenant. Verse 28 says, the rest of the people. They were fully identified with their leaders. And their numbers seemed to include some who came to faith from pagan backgrounds even. Some believe verses 28 and 29 is an indication of some who accepted the full obligation of the law. And had joined themselves to Israel. Particularly where it states, all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God in Nehemiah 10.28. So it was this, this highly personal commitment. They counted the cost. They said, this is, I am personally invested in this situation. I'm personally invested in this covenant commitment. Secondly, it was a public commitment commitment it was a public commitment it was affirmed and recorded in the presence of many witnesses the people who had prayed publicly now made their promise publicly yes it was a personal promise but it was not individualistic as if it were a matter concerned for only a solitary believer these issues affected society in general and everyone was testifying openly to their neighbors that they had presented themselves anew to God. It wasn't some big secret like hush hush thing. Right? It was it was public. Everybody knew. A public commitment of this kind is an important part of an effective Christian testimony. I don't know. Did any of you guys watch the whole uh thing on TV where they were signing the articles of impeachment, right? That was a big public thing. I'm not trying to get political, so everybody calm down, all right? But it was a big, there was no question who's signing the thing, right? Everybody knew, and then they got a fancy pen as a gift. I don't, I don't even understand that whole mess. But anyway, it was public. That's what this was. It was a big deal. Everybody's standing there, and there's, people are signing it, and everybody's watching this thing being signed. It wasn't like all hush-hush, like, oh, we're signing it in secret. Everybody knew it. A public commitment. It was like a Christian testimony. It's like baptism in the early Christian church provided the early Christians with a form of witness which publicly declared to others a resolute commitment and loyalty to Christ. Everybody knew when somebody walked as an early Christian into that river and was baptized. I guess my thing is we have so many undercover Christians today. You know what I mean, right? 
they're Christians because that's what they call themselves or because they go to church. But if we were to go around and ask their co-workers, hey, is so-and-so a Christian? They wouldn't be able to tell us. You see, we treat our commitment to Christ and the church sometimes as a non-public commitment. The only thing public about our commitment is we come on a Sunday morning. And their commitment was public. Everybody knew what they were doing. And they were being held to it. So it was personal, it was public, and lastly, it was practical. This was not some sort of generalized statements. These were carefully chosen words. They instead committed themselves to specific actions that would characterize their lives and authenticate their witness. The agreement would radically change their lifestyle and affect every aspect of their daily conduct. I want us to understand something this morning, church. You see, we have this stuck in our head that Christianity is not about commitment. And we can just go about doing and living and acting the way we've always been. Christianity is so much more than intellectual assent to a series of doctrinal positions. You see, at its heart, it means committing yourself to the way of life which Christ has determined and exemplified for us. It means that we're no longer living for self, for self-interest, for self-desires, but instead everything that we do is for Christ and his glory. Do you get that? It means that you go to work at your job for his glory. It means that you go to school for his glory. It means that you wake up and you come to church for his glory. Not not like, oh, it's two degrees outside. There's no way I'm going. But you, you go for his glory. It's because you can't wait to see other Christians and learn more about Christ. It's like, I, want, I am so excited to go to church today because I'm going to see my brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm going to hear the word of God proclaimed, even if it means, boy, it sure did hit me hard. I can't wait because it's for His glory. It means that you don't talk about coming to Sunday school and you don't talk about showing up on Wednesday. You do it. You do it. It's all for his glory. It's a call to a radical way of life. It's not adding Christ to what you already do. You see, biblical teaching and doctrine and deed are inseparable. Belief actually affects behavior. This is how we know when someone is serious about their Christian faith. Because their belief in Christ affects their behavior. And it's absolutely preposterous to think that your belief in Christ does not affect your behavior. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. You can tell the depth of someone's belief in Christ by their behavior.
behavior. In Christian life and witness, so much is lost because we're uncertain. The devil's not sitting around worried about our feeble, holy aspirations. Because holy aspirations don't amount to anything. No, he's troubled when we, in obedience to God and for the glory of Christ and the power of the Spirit, make firm, practical commitments to do specific things for the Lord. That's when the devil's worried. That's when he takes notice. He's worried when the church members say, you know what? I'm going to covenant together with other church members in front of everybody. He stands up and takes notice. When church members don't talk about what they're going to do, but they do it. They don't talk about coming. They come. They don't talk about how great their church is. They're there doing something about how great their church is. He is not worried when we talk about growing in our faith. And we talk about getting closer to God. And we talk about uh, how great another believer is. But when we take steps to get closer to God, when we take steps to grow in our faith, the devil takes notice. The Israelites' initial promise and Nehemiah's covenant to obey God's word was general in stipulation. And it was followed by five promises of how that obedience would be worked out and precise issues of personal, family, and community life, which we will look at next week. Here's my question for you this morning, church. Who are you committed to? When you sit there this morning, and you examine your life, and you think back on your life, What have you done last week, last month, last year that actually reveals your commitment to Christ? Your belief affects your behavior. And if all you can say is, I went to church on Sunday morning, you got a problem. In other words, does your living for the Lord dictate what you do with the rest of your life? Because as Christians, we are to live for the Lord. That's what we are called to do for his glory. What in your life? This past week, this past month, this past year has been done for the glory of God and you can look back and say ah that's my commitment to Christ what do you need to repent do you need to pray well I don't know what you need to do but I'm challenging you if God has spoken to you this morning to the proclamation of his word that you respond and maybe it's you go home and you write it down And you make a covenant commitment and you follow through with what the Lord has spoken to you. Or maybe this morning, for the first time, the gospel actually made sense. And you need to commit your life to Christ today. He'll save you. He's in the saving business. 
I challenge you that if the Lord spoken to you this morning to respond to his word. Let's close with prayer.